Of the Survival Podcast. Got a good show lined up for you today. We'll start out with a quick reminder about TSP 23 and my, why you may want, to, may want to come and why, if you want to come, you better be ready 0930 Central Standard Time Saturday morning. Uh, it's like Santa coming to town. TSP 23 is coming to town. Uh, then I'm going to ask you a question. I'll tell you my answer to this question because it is 9 11, right? It is the day, in the words of the Alla Jackson song, that the world stopped turning. And no matter, I think there's different camps on the what happened on that day thing from people that just believe everything they were told to the people that believe the most whacked out conspiracy theorists known to man. And most people are somewhere in between those. But I think no matter where you are in that spectrum, the world did stop turning that day. No matter how, why you think it happened, the fact that it happened has, I think, cemented it in the minds of anybody that was old enough. I said in the notes, if you're over 10 and maybe if you're younger, but if you're over 10, I bet you can tell me exactly where you were when you found out and what the next couple of days are like. So I think it's always good to learn from history, especially history that's in our own personal lives. So we'll talk about that a bit today. And I'll tell you why there actually is a link between, if you've never heard me talk about it before, this uh, event and the survival podcast, even though, that happened in 2001, and the Survival Podcast didn't begin until 2008. As far apart as that is, it's really the genesis of the show. Uh, next up, <clears throat> got a question on grow lights for microgreens, and it was a really complex question. I got a really simple answer. Don't worry about it, but I'll explain what I mean by that when we cover that. Um, now, the president... CEO of a company called Gotham Greens says CEA is here to stay. It's a pretty long article with an interview with him. Uh, I'm not holding up Gotham Greens or this dude as an example of anything, but I do agree. What is CEA? Controlled Environmental Agriculture. Growing indoors, growing in a greenhouse, in this case, growing in completely inside with lighting, whatever. That's all of it is some form or another of Controlled environmental agriculture, because everything has to have an acronym today. CEA is here to stay. Um, but I'll tell you why I agree, specifically with the types of things that Gotham Greens are growing, which you might imagine are greens. And I know there's people that don't like this. I'm actually not talking about it today from the perspective of whether or not I think it's a good thing. I'm talking about the premise that the CEO brought up. It's here to stay. Is that true? And if so, why? I think that's important to look at future trends. Um, build to rent neighborhoods. Think of it like single family apartments. It's, uh, the, the, I've got this little video I'll show you that was on a local news station here. One of you guys sent it to me, but this is actually really close to me. The place that it's talking about is on, on Bolt, Boat Club Road. I don't know exactly where this place is, but I know where Boat Club Road is. Um, it is less than 10 minutes from my house. Now, what part of Boat Club Road this is on, I don't know, but I think you'll find it interesting. Basically, you will own nothing. It's an entire development of luxury housing. You can't buy one. They're all centrally owned and then rented out as rentals. 
Uh, I think we're going to see more of that, too. You will own nothing, be happy, live in the pot and eat the bugs. Unless you're rich, then you'll own nothing and live in the house that you rent. Uh, I think that is the plan. Then I had a question on meat glue. Sounds gross. Uh, dude that wrote me said he found one of the one of the people doing meat cutting that I've been talking about a lot lately and taking a filet mignon, taking two of them, laying the thin ends together and making one big filet so you got a lot more medallions out of your filet mignon. Um, this is one of the videos I suggested you look for these types of videos where it was put out during the height of the COVIDs and restaurants were trying to survive. And this guy was showing you, like, this is how you reduce the waste out of the most expensive cut of meat you're going to buy for your restaurant. Well, the guy says, like, I remember you covering pink slime years ago, and that was pretty disgusting. Is meat glue the same, like, just as disgusting, or is it safe? Would you eat something with it? I'm going to tell you why many of you, if you're like, no way, man, I wouldn't eat any meat glue, uh, you probably eat it more often than you think. You probably eat it more. You ever eat those little crab legs that aren't really crab legs that are, like, a bunch of white fish put together with some red food coloring on it. Like, you know, if you go get sushi and you get a California roll, how do you think they hold all that together? I'll tell you why the product itself is not really that big of a problem. Okay. In of itself. But if you were going to use it or eat something with it, you may want to know that it was done for a very specific reason. And we'll talk about like, is that reason really worth getting all wound up about? And I'll tell you about something that happens at Costco that if the fears behind it were true, Costco would be under the jail and uh, there'd be a lot of sick people in the country. And it has nothing to do with meat glue, the Costco thing. But the two things go together in a way where sometimes I think we worry too much. And then somebody asked me, what is Bastrama and have I ever made it? I had not made it. I did not know what it is. I do know what it is now. I will share it with you. And hell F yes, I'm going to make it. In fact, if it comes out really good, maybe I'll make some extra and we'll have it at TSP 23. I'm going to go get me some big old eye around and I'm going to make me some Barastrama. Uh, this just looks amazing. This is like Biltong 2.0 or something, right? Uh, it's pretty amazing looking. And William is hitting on the meat glue thing, but we're going to hold on that, William. But for those that are in the chat I'll, or watching the video, what he's sitting on is a big piece of what I mean. Many of you are already eating it. All right, so let's talk about, um, first first and foremost, TSP 23, just a quick reminder. Yes, we are doing it again. TSP 23 will be the best workshop we have ever done. I am so jazzed about this. Steven Reisner, who will be batting cleanup, last presentation on the last day, uh, on the same day that Nick Ferguson and Matt Powers are presenting, the same day that we are doing a biochar workshop, he just sent me his PowerPoint deck for Korean natural farming. Holy this This dude, his presentation is probably worth the cost of admission as long as the food went with it alone. This is going to be awesome. Remember, I'm also making sure every paying student will get a copy of Jim Shockey's book, Call Me Hunter, autographed by Jim and numbered TSP 23, number one of, you know, 60 or whatever it ends up being. And once we get the class set up and ready to go, I will probably then give you a week, anybody that wants to order a copy of that book that's either coming here or you have someone who is coming here to pick it up for you because I'm not shipping it. I'm paying for a giant case of books 
to be shipped from Houston to my house one time, and that's it. So I'm not reshuffling anything. But if you want a copy of it, it's going to be the only way to get that book. And uh, I got a deal with a local bookshop down in Houston, Jim's agent and Jim himself to make this happen. It took a little effort to make it happen, but I thought it was really worth it. Uh, those of you who also remember, right after I did Jim's interview a couple of weeks ago, I did um, Miles Legoze's interview uh, and his book about the reality of what things are like behind the you know behind the, the combat lines, uh, what it's like to be a soldier or a marine in that situation. I was trying to get both of these books for the workshop. Miles' book is not being released until the week after the workshop. But when that book gets released, we will set up a way, if you want a signed copy of it, to get a signed copy of Miles' book shipped straight to your door. That'll be a little bit different than the way we're going to do this. So I just wanted to let you guys know that. All right, so let's dive off the deep end. Where were you 22 years ago when the world stopped turning? I... I I remember it well, but what I've found is if I ask any adult or anybody that was an adult or even an older, like teen, even teenager, or whatever, uh, that question today, they always remember. I think in a lot of ways it was for like our generation. Some of you may be old enough. You would answer. You would remember this one when Kennedy was shot. You know, Ken Kennedy being shot for a whole group of Americans was the thing that was lasered into their brain. On this day, I was right here when I found, and I, I'd say before that, it was probably Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941, that people remembered exactly where they were when they found out it. And not every day that's like that tends to be, um, doesn't always have to be something bad. I think most people that were, you know, adults in 1969 can tell you where they were when Neil Armstrong first set on the moon, foot, foot on the moon. There are things like that that's in our brain. Now, for me, where was I? I was on an airplane. I flew from Philadelphia to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania that morning. It was a beautiful morning. And I still to this day have no idea if what happened had any connection to radio chatter or anything that was going on. But I know that I was landing at about almost exactly the time the first plane was hitting the first building. And so we were coming into Pittsburgh International. We we're on a, I think it was like a smaller jet. Wheels touch down. You feel, get ready to feel the brakes and instead power up. We took back off. Could have had nothing to do with it. I have no idea. Plane made a circle, landed. Sometimes they just call planes too close on top of each other, whatever, and they do that. So I, I went out and it was one of those times like nothing. It never works like this at an airport. You never have it work like this. Like you get off the plane, you walk to baggage claim. Immediately the baggage thing starts running. First bag out is mine. Pick one bag, short business trip for a week. Pick my bag up, head outside. My sales rep that we're going to do sales calls sitting in his, his van waiting to pick me up. Get in the van. He puts Howard Stern on the radio. We pull out of the airport. By the time we leave the actual airport entrance, we're already hearing reports about World Trade Center being hit. And at first, I think most people hearing it on a radio especially 
were under the impression it was probably a small aircraft. It was probably an accident. We were literally joking about it at that point. You know, and I feel horrible now to think that I was joking about it, but I didn't know. I, we were talking about you know, some guy got drunk in his Cessna or pissed off at a stockbroker and jumped in a Cessna and smashed into this building. Well, as we're driving, we continue to listen to this, and it becomes apparent pretty quick, this is not an accident. Or if they, We still thought it was an accident, but this is a big plane. And this rep and I are talking. This guy's name was Matt. And we're talking about it. We're saying, that how, how, do you, how does an airliner accidentally hit a skyscraper in, in 2001, right? Like, and then as we're driving, we hear another plane hit the other World Trade Center building. And I look at this guy, Matt, and I say, you know what this means, right? He goes, it means we're at war. We then heard about the Pentagon being hit. It was kind of the next part of the day. By now, we're on the phone, both of us, calling every person that we have meetings with and knowing it's just not going to, like, this is too big of a thing. It's not going to happen. And uh, so we cancel our whole day. And he's like, we got to go find out what's going on. So we went into a, like a, uh, we went to my hotel I was staying at and they had a pretty big bar at this hotel. And, you know, they served us also a bar and restaurant. So they have like three meals a day, full service bar in a restaurant, not just the ones that are open only in the night. So it's still pretty early in the day. We walk in and everybody's looking at the TV. And to give you kind of the timeline of how long that all took, as we walk in, down goes the first building that fell. And everybody just stood there. And what I remember the most is feeling absolutely helpless, not for what was happening in of itself. I was several hundred miles from home. I knew my wife would be really scared. My son would be really scared. And I wasn't there. And where I belonged was there with them. Not out on the road trying to get people to buy more freaking computer testers. Because that's what I did. I sold computer test equipment for a company called Microtest, but it had just been acquired by Fluke, and that's how I ended up with Fluke. So I'm running around trying to get people to buy a box to plug into a network cable to test the cable that 99% of the time doesn't even need to be tested. We created an entire industry based on bullshit that engineers wrote up to sell people to the idea that we needed to test every cable to make sure that it was up to spec or some other shit. You plug the computer in, the computer works, it's good, it doesn't work, it's bad. That's the reality. Now, I'm not completely crapping on computer testing. I'm just saying that, like, everything would still work. If you, if you had a, a little $50 tester that showed you how you were pinned out right on those jacks, you would be able to fix 99% of problems. And I just thought, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? And I, I tried to call my wife a couple times on a cell phone, and I couldn't get through. And I quit trying. I'm like, she knows my flight number. She knows where I am. Everything's going to be okay. But then Matt turns to me, and he says, dude, that plane that went down outside of Pittsburgh, you got to get through. you got to get through because the plane that hit the field, right? And I'm like, yeah, you're right. So I just kept calling, kept calling, kept calling. Finally got my wife on the phone. She's crying. And I'm worried about her. I just wanted her to know I'm okay. She knew. She knows I'm okay. She's tracked all the flight numbers. I'm not even on one of the airlines. I'm in a third-party airline. So she knew I was okay. She knew I plane landed. I'm like, you got to get a hold of the school. 
because they're going to tell these kids what happened in school. My son was in junior high, right? I'm like, they're going to, and I'm thinking back to like the eighties when I'm in school and when the challenger blew up and they wheeled TV sets into our classroom and put it on and showed it to us. And I think this is what, this is my frame of reference. This is what I think is going to happen. And my kid's going to hear a plane in Pittsburgh and he's going to lose his shit. So she finally gets through to the school. The people at the school are inherently rude to her and say, well, we're not telling them anything. Okay, you don't have to be a dick about it. But hence, you know, my ongoing hatred of the public school system. And uh, I ended up stuck there for like three days. I got with my travel coordinator about three days in and said, I got to get home. And it was really hard to get rental cars, especially one way, because everybody was doing it. She's like, we do enough business. They'll do it. So she gets on the phone, calls back. And uh, my rep takes me to Pittsburgh airport to pick a rental car up there. And I got to drive it to Philly. And, and then I got I to gotta get from Philly home to my house, right, because I left my car in Philadelphia. So there's two major airports here. And uh, so I drive. I do all that. And the most eerie thing, remember, we had all stop on flights for like a week. In one day, I'm in two of the largest airports in the country, Philly and Pitt. Not a sound, completely quiet. I get home, and here's how it's connected to TSP. I immediately knew, even though I stayed another almost three years with that job, this is not going to be my future. I built a fire pit with my son and decided when I was home, we were going to spend quality time. That next spring, I put a garden in because it was already September, obviously. Started growing my own food again. And that pathway led straight. It's it, a long path. It was seven years. But it led right to here. And it wasn't about, oh, the world's going to end. There's going to be a global war, whatever. No. It was, this is not how I want to live my life anymore. I don't want when something like this happens, because stuff like this happens. I don't want to not be there for my family. And that's what 9-11 will always be for me personally. There's the larger implication, the lives lost, et cetera, the, the horrible wars that we were sold into that had nothing to do with this shit. So, yes, that matters to me, too. But what it means to me personally is that story. And I think that most people out there have a story like that about 9-11. And I think it's just a good time to tell those stories to each other. All right, let's move on. So... Government, you know, as we learned with 9-11, never lets a good crisis go to waste. And the Democrat mayor of New Mexico right, or the governor of New Mexico right now is uh, doing the same thing. So apparently there was a shooting in Albuquerque. And so the New Mexico governor has suspended open and concealed carry of guns in Albuquerque for people with permits. This, this chick right here. Doesn't she just look like the kind of person? Is that not a Karen? For those of you on the video, if I say Karen, do you not see that picture in your head or something very close? This is a political Karen of, of another level, right? This is like the queen Karen here. All right, so this pea brain, she says we're doing this until we can get our arms around this problem, and we're doing this because people are literally afraid to go outside, and we just have to do this temporarily, you know? Okay, well, here's the problem, bitch. 
you do not have the constitutional authority to issue a freaking uh, executive order like this. However, it will be enforced. So there are already gun rights groups that are suing over this. But this is this shows the liberal lunacy of this stuff. Okay, so wait a minute. So somebody goes out and shoots people for whatever reason. They're angry. They don't like what color they are. They don't like the shoes they're wearing. They're angry. They're crazy. Whatever it is. And you're going to pass a law that says, okay, nobody can carry a gun so that everybody will feel safe for 30 days in Albuquerque and the county that Albuquerque is in. It does not affect the entire state of New Mexico. However, the uh, the cops can carry their guns, and you can have your gun locked up in your trunk in a case unloaded while you're traveling. And if you go to a range or something, you can use your gun. Okay, so it's New York City is what you're telling me. Now, this is my question for people like this Karen here, this political Karen, Governor Karen, right? Do you think a person that's going to freaking shoot somebody is going to be like, oh, well, you know what I was going to do this week? I was going to go down. I was going to go downtown Albuquerque and I was going to shoot some people. But Karen, Governor Karen says I'm not allowed to this month. So, you know, what? I, I can't do it now. This kind of stuff. And tell me, you guys, what is... The word, the little phrase, two-word phrase I use constantly that I'm always trying to get you to latch on to. What is it? It starts with a P. The initials are P-R. What is it? Pattern recognition. Have we not seen this pattern before? Oh, there's an emergency. Because there's an emergency, I get special powers that I wouldn't normally have. I know the Constitution of the United States does not say I have these powers. And the Constitution of the state of New Mexico does not say I have these powers. But I'll just magically say, based on fairy dust and health emergency, a health emergency. That's what Governor Karen says. Governor Karen says it's a health emergency. I'm not doing it as a gun control measure. I'm doing it for public health. Guys, this kind of shit's going to keep happening more and more. It really is. This is going to be, how many things have they claimed were health emergencies? Right? Think about the whole COVID fiasco. The president issues an order that you cannot evict somebody for not paying their rent in the middle of the COVID. What do they declare it? A health emergency. There's no constitutional authority for this whatsoever. No constitutional authority for this whatsoever, but it's a health emergency. The number one way they're going to come after your guns going forward is health emergencies. Health emergencies. They now have this shit on medical forms. You go to a doctor. Do you have any guns in your house? Are they properly stored? You're at, you're my freaking doctor. I came to you because I got a case of the shits or whatever. You're asking me about my guns. And, you know, I don't always agree with Glenn Beck, but sometimes he says some really, really intelligent things. And I remember back when these forms started coming out, I saw a little snippet of him. And he was saying the way that you answer those questions is, do you have any guns in your home? No. And in your head, that you need to know about. That you There are none that you need to know about. This is ridiculous stuff. And they're going to keep, they're going to keep pressing this button. There's two things that they're going to do for this gun control shit. One is they're going to continue to brainwash the youngest among us. 
especially in their indoctrination centers known as schools. <clears throat> you have to understand how many kids, school-age kids, live in absolute terror that there's going to be a shooting at their school. Now, if you're a kid in America today, you're more likely to drown than get killed in a freaking school shooting. You're more likely to die in a bus accident going to school than you are in a school shooting. It, the, the odds that something will happen to the individual are incredibly low. But you know how the mind of a kid works. In fact, the less they see of the threat and the more they hear of it, the more horrifying the threat becomes. Somebody asked Stephen King once, again, not my favorite person, but admittedly a, a gifted author. How do you touch fear in people? He said, when you were a kid, you were scared of the thing that was under your bed. You didn't know what it was, and that made it more horrifying. That made it scarier. Your mind can make something scarier than it ever would be if you knew what it was. Okay? And he said, I write about that. I don't fully explain what the thing is so that your mind will complete it, because I know what your mind will complete will be more horrifying than anything I could write in a book. This is this is mental manipulation propaganda 101 by governments. You set up a threat and then you you don't actually define it or explain it. You make it ethereal and open ended. And then you keep ramming the threat, the threat, the threat, the threat. And people become horrified and they will allow things to happen that normally wouldn't. Because I'll go back to the COVID for a second. I'm trying to be careful. I don't get my PP slapped or anything and thrown in YouTube jail again. Um, but just the real-time death counters. You know, no one asks all these media companies that did this shit for, like, what, the first three months? Hey, what happened to those real-time death counters? Where did those numbers come from in the first place? How did you know in real time? Like, remember that? And people go, ah, okay, salami, salami, baloney, bowing down, kissing the ass of big government. We'll do anything you say. We have to. We'll stay home. Flatten the curve. Wear a face diaper. All of it. It all came from, you know, Star Wars, right? The emergency powers. And what did, what did the emperor say when he took power? As soon as this crisis is over, I'll give the power back. No one ever gives the freaking ring of power back. It has to be taken from them. Yeah, so Karen, New Mexico's governor, Karen, is uh, banning the Second Amendment just for a month, just in Albuquerque. I'll, I'm going to be following this one. I don't follow a lot of political shit, but it's going to be interesting to see how the courts handle this. Now, my guess is, with this being in Albuquerque, it's kind of difficult for a gun rights group to pick, and New Mexico as a whole, to pick a place where they can get a a judge that would be friendly to their side. And so an emergency injunction that stops it cold could happen, but I'm not betting on it unless you got somebody that's just going to do his job or her job as a judge, whether they like it or not. You know, in, in the words of Gorgeous, if you're happy with every decision you make as a judge, you're not a very good judge. So if that happens then you know, it's, it's definitely it is, it, but it will probably come and go in that 30-day marker, before the courts settle it. And I think it is a trial balloon, trial balloon for Dems. 
what will the courts have to say about this? Can we use this? Can we get a precedent here? Low risk, it's just New Mexico. If it doesn't work, it doesn't really set us back. But if it does work, we can get it to work. Now, I'll tell you how bad this is. How bad this is. Everybody know who David Hogue is? David Hogue, David Hogg. There I was, minding my own business when the report's going all around my head. Bastard wasn't even in school. He's now a college-educated young man, went, went to Harvard for four years. Gun rights activist. Most of us loathe the little lying maggot. We do. You know what he said on his Twitter? You can look this shit up. He said, I'm completely for gun control, but there is no such thing as a health exception to the Constitution. One of the most radical, left-leaning gun activists on the planet said, this is not constitutional. And that's why I'm going to pay attention to it. Because if they get away with it, it's a level of kangaroo court we have not seen before. And that's not good. And I think you're about to see, I think there's a lot of people on the Trump train that know how weaponized the justice system has become and think because of that, the orange man shall prevail in all of his court cases eventually, if not directly, but with appeals. Don't you bet on it. Don't you bet on it. We are very rapidly getting to the point here where law enforcement and the justice departments, whether it's the federal justice department or the individual state justice departments, are getting to a point where they can do nothing for you, but they can do plenty to you. And it's a very dangerous place to be in a society like ours. And in some ways, our government going full totalitarian is much more horrifying than, let's say, it happening in a place like Russia or Brazil or whatever. And the reason is because of how successful we've been, the resources these people have are virtually unlimited. They're virtually unlimited. Where many other nations, the totalitarianism is limited inherently by the resources the government even has. Because even in some really totalitarian nations, that shit might hold up in their big cities and all, but you go out in the country, nobody gives a shit. And they know they don't have the the resources to, to control it, so they just kind of pretend it's not there. This government, yeah, I think you're better off in a rural than an urban area, but the level of misery that they can inflict is insane. And it is really a, the kangaroo court's the only word I got for it. Let's go on to something a little more practical. So I got an email from a guy. I'm not going to read it because it was very long and it went into a lot of technical specifications. And his wife and, and him have a cabinet they've purchased and they're going to grow microgreens in it and they need grow lights. And he gave me like 12 different kinds of grow lights and all different kinds of specs and how much power draws. Stop it. First of all, let's address this question from a standpoint of you want to grow microgreens. You don't even need really good grow lights to grow microgreens. Microgreens don't even really need lights until like the last day or two. So most of your microgreens, you actually do the majority of the growing where they're stacked and there's no light at all. And then when they're almost done growing, you put them under the lights and you green them up for a day, two, three, something like that. So we can use plain old shop lights to do microgreens. Because we're not actually growing the plant out, and the plant is getting the majority of the nutrient that it needs for that amount of growth is coming from the seed itself. So within a seed is a variety of micronutrients, depending on what that plant is, that that plant needs to grow. 
So just like, let me think of it this way. Why can we buy a baby chicken and have it shipped to us in the mail? And the chicken hatches and it dries off. And then the next morning, the chicken goes in a box. And two days later, it's been three days since this chicken hatched. It shows up a box, a peeping box at our post office. We go down and pick it up. We bring them home. Usually you lose one or two here and there, depending on how many you bought, because shit happens. But even if they hatch in your backyard, you tend, you know, out of 20, 30 babies, you have some losses. You feed them, you give them water, and everybody goes on about their life. Well, they do that because within the, the, the egg itself is what this chicken needs to grow to a certain stage. And that chicken hasn't, it doesn't eat and drink while it's in the egg. And when it hatches, it has about 48 to 72 hours of nutrient and, 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 and moisture, assuming nothing bad happens to it, right? If, if nothing bad happens to it, like it doesn't, it's not sitting out in 100 degrees or something, or 210 degrees. They actually like 100 degrees. As long as they don't get dehydrated or something, they're fine for two, three, even some of them four days. Well, seeds are like that. Seeds have, a, like, if it needs selenium, there's selenium in the seed. This is why seeds, now seed oils, are the devil. I won't get into that today, but, like, canola oil and shit like that, no. No, 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 no. That is the devil. But when we look at things like sunflower seed, and you look at the nutritional profile, well, the reason there's so much nutrition in there, that nutrition's not for you. That nutrition is for the next generation. It's a battery of nutrients. So microgreens are drawing mostly on that nutrient battery, so we don't need to grow out. Now, if you want to do other things, right, if you want to start uh, actually growing stuff out, you want to do hydroponics or whatever, then we need some good grow lights. But we don't need to go stupid expensive. One of my favorites, I've recommended them forever, Verena. I have a link in the audio notes for today's episode right next to this bullet point. Uh, for Verena Grow Lights on Amazon. It just goes to a search page with a bunch of Verena Lights on it. Of course, Amazon has all kinds of sponsored shit and all that are not Verena. From there, you can go into the Verena store if you want to look for something specific. I recommend for most instances two or four foot grow lights. Those are most common dimensions that seem to work well for the projects people build. But, I mean, they make them eight feet long. They make them three feet long, et cetera. Right now, I'm using, is this here? Is this purchased June 3rd, 2023? Right. This particular set here is a six pack of three foot, 500 Kelvin daylight white full spectrum plant lights. Ninety bucks. Six of them. You know what I'm doing with them? Why I bought them? I have all kinds of hydro systems built. I'm not even running any of them right now or whatever. So why would I why would I buy more lights this summer? Well, a really good aquarium light. For my 40-gallon aquarium, my new planted 40-gallon aquarium, is like $80 to $90 for one light. That aquarium needs at least two because it's fairly wide. I actually have three of these that I'm growing aquatic vegetation using these instead of an aquarium light. And I'm having better results with these than I've ever had with an, a dedicated aquarium light. Because all it is is the full spectrum there, and is there enough brightness for the plants. So I'm just going to say, here's your easy button answer. Use Barina lights and don't worry about things. Just don't. Unless you're getting something really complicated, some sort of weird orchid or some shit that needs, like, you know, has to have virgin thighs caress it to grow right or something. Just use Barinas and move on. And I will say this. Barina is basically an OEM manufacturer. There's some, there's some shop 
in, in, in Taiwan, you know, making all this shit, and Verena's just slapping their name on it, and they have a pretty nice product array. I recommend them because I have used them, and everybody in my audience that's used them are happy. If you find other lights that are similar in form and format for a better price, and you look at the picture and they look the same, they probably are. They probably are. But what I'll say about Barina is if you have a problem and you email them your problem, they will fix your problem. That's another reason I recommend it. It will be in Chinglish. It will not be the easiest thing to read, but they will fix your problem. So use Barina lights and go on with your life. But if you are doing microgreens, understand that old school shop lights like T5s, right? Like that's all you need. John Dowie, who runs John Dowie, runs Dowie Farms. That's what he started with was old school metal cheap shop lights. And, and it worked fine because, again, we're only greening up. But if you're buying new lights, so if you that's more if you have them, go ahead and use them. Don't be afraid to use them. If you're buying new lights, there's too much value, reliability, energy efficiency, et cetera, in these LEDs um, to, to not use them. And, and Charlie here saying, uh, Barina eight foot LED white lights work great for shop, garage overhead lighting, digital for rest. I'm telling you, I've got lights like this. Now I don't buy the dedicated grow lights for shop lights, but these LED lights are cheap. Um, we actually had to unplug some of it, it made the shop too bright. So I ended up putting them in zones so we could turn on different zones when we want to. Um, we actually like climbed up on the ladder at the, at the last workshop and unplugged some of them because they were just too bright. They're just too bright. Uh, anyway, moving on from there, again, just use Barina. On the same, we're in the same vein here. And I want to talk about this because this is an important sector to keep an eye on, in my opinion. Uh, this is on a website called thepacker.com. I think Mark Beckendorf, who will be at TSP 23, sent this to me. He sends me a lot of cool shit. And it's again, the title of the article is CEA is here to stay, says Gotham Greens, chief executive officer. And this is a really long article because it's an article and then it's an interview afterward. And uh, it says at the, at the beginning of the interview, it was edited for brevity and clarity. And all I could think was, thank God, because this is really long. But the guy, it's his company. He's a CEO. They're doing well. He's uh He's obviously going to paint a rosy picture of this, right? He's not going to say that it's uh, it's a bad thing, and he's going to give the typical things about climate change and, and whatever. But he does seem to know what he's doing. And, you know, one of the things they talk about in here is how much more food you can grow per acre. And it's as much as 70 times the amount of food per acre. Now, this is the best case scenario for the indoor growing and the worst case scenario for the outdoor growing. And you might be able to say it's a thousand times better because the real worst case scenario is going to be something like, you know, get nothing. You'll get nothing and you won't be happy as a farmer. That's, that's the worst case scenario. But what they're talking about is reasonable agricultural production, like an operation that would be considered successful. I'm going to tell you why this is going to continue, whether you like it or not. It works. That's why it works and it's profitable. It is an extremely expensive infrastructure to set up compared to field growing. Field growing, you need seed, you need equipment, and you need dirt, and you need rain or you need irrigation. 
right? But it's pretty low cost to start up when we're talking about two, three, four acre market garden type situations. It's not as expensive as a lot of other businesses are to start up. Now, if we're talking about farming 40,000 acres, you need a billion dollars worth of shit damn near to be able to do that anymore. But in these cases, you can you can definitely spend a hell of a lot more money on, let's say, a two-acre greenhouse situation like this than you would to start a two-acre farm. However, what does it get you? How does it benefit you once you figured that out? Number one, the production. Let's call the production 20x. Let's, let's take his extreme example. Wait, say it's 20x. So I have two acres. What would I need to produce 20x of two acres without something like this? Well, two times 20, 40 acres. So how much does 40 acres versus two acres of land cost? And all of a sudden, it's not that much more expensive to set up an operation like this. And there are grants and stuff to do it. But what do I get once it's done? Well, I get climate control. Everybody thinks, well, that means you can grow through your winter. Okay. But I can also remain productive in my summer, my spring, and my fall. I have four season growing. And what this type of system is best at, high turn, high dollar greens. That's why it's called Gotham Greens. Now, an operation like this is probably going to have like a line of tomatoes and some maybe peppers or something for some variety. But 80% of their total production is going to be rapid turn greens. And having grown these things, and most of these systems are hydroponic. Most of these systems are going to be hydroponic, not soil based. Having done this, I can tell you the growth is exceptional. The growth rate is exceptional. I'm talking seeds of arugula to cut greens in 20 days. And that's not really baby. That's kind of like young, right? It's not micro. Maybe 25 on the outside for arugula. Spinach, 30 days. Basil, 25, 30 days. And a lot of these crops can be harvested, cut, and come again. But most of them aren't. They actually just take the whole plug and they package it with the plug and with some moisture. And then this stays very fresh upon delivery. You can, again, you can not like it. And I know I have quite a few people in the audience because every time I talk about hydro, I get, eh, soil. I'm not even talking about whether or not this is a good or a bad thing today. I'm talking about this as a business model. I'm talking about this as a business model, and Andy is saying, I'm curious as to how nutrient-dense the plants are. As good as anything else you're going to buy in a store? Now, if you have Jean, Jean-Paul Fortier or whatever his name is from Canada and his perfect, you know, growing climate and his highly cultivated soils that he's been working for years, it, it's probably not as good as that. But if you take a hydroponically produced arugula spinach salad and compare its nutrient density to what you would get from a soil-based organic farm today again mass market this is mass market right it's not going to be any better the the soil growth stuff's not going to be any better and you will not be able to taste the difference people tell me all the time i can taste the difference no you can't no you can't you can say it all you want but no you can't and with hydro, those plants get whatever. If you want more nutrient density, 
then put the nutrients that you want that plant to have in there. And so it's, it's not really, again, though, I don't really care how nutrient dense it is for this discussion. If you look at the challenges farmers face, you can end up with insect problems in a greenhouse. Anybody that's ever had a greenhouse knows that you can, but you have a lot more control and it's a lot easier to deal with, especially with some of the new systems they have. In. You know, they use like extraction from chrysanthemum and little mists here and there, and they're able to claim it's organic then, right? Um, it just is a really solid business model at this point. People want to eat healthier in general. When, when people eat salads, they feel like they're eating healthier. It sells for really good money. And to be able to turn something, let's say each grow space every 30 days. Well, let's talk about, uh, you know, when I saw the comment about density at first, I thought that he was asking about how densely planted the, the, the plants were. And that's actually one of the things that's really powerful with these systems. A lot of these systems use a, a floating raft system that as the plants grow and they move down, they actually spread further apart. So when the plants are little, they're really close together and just the operation of the system itself. And you only are spreading out the plants in their final growth stage just as much as they need. And we can do that because as long as there's enough airflow that we don't get problems with airflow. And as long as there's enough light, the nutrient is not an issue. One of the reasons we have to space plants out in soil is because there's only so much nutrient profile available in that soil for those plants as they grow and expand the root systems. When we take the, the nutrients straight to the plant, and this is the same with aquaponics. But when, when we're doing this indoors, there is just a litany of shit that can destroy a farmer and put them into bankruptcy that's gone. How about what I just had happen here over the weekend? We got a blessing Saturday night. Saturday night, Saturday night, or was it Friday night? I don't even remember now. I'm in bed and I hear thunder. Pick the app up and go, that stuff's pretty far north. I don't know if it got here. It got here. And we have all agreed all of us around here looking at the damage that was done, we either had like an F-Zero tornado that they missed or a shit ton of microbursts or something. We have trees with the top ripped off them. A bunch of my peppers are kind of blown over and stuff. A little bit harder of a storm. And if I was running a market garden, it would have been all but wiped the hell out. Now, can you get damage to that structure? Sure. But if you don't, nothing happens. How about hail? Hail. Now you get big enough hail and you got a greenhouse, you can have busted ass windows and stuff, right? But think about typical hail and what hail does to micro, to like small green crops. It just beats the hell out of it. We had hail one year, a couple years after I moved in here. It looked like when you go to some convenience stores and stuff and you get ice in your cup, the little tiny pellets of ice that make everything so it's just a little bit too big to be a slushy which is a little bit too big to be a Slurpee, right? That stuff, it looked like that. It was three inches deep. It was like shotgun pellets. It wrecked every, it was early in the year. I had a lot of stuff I hadn't put out yet. Everything was out. It wrecked. It defoliated. It just destroyed everything. So when you start looking at that, you get one real dry spell. 
and even with irrigation, you have problems. You get temperatures above a certain degree, and plants can't access certain nutrients. Well, these these systems, what they do, they put in these basically giant evaporative cooler walls. So we've probably all been to like the feed store or whatever, and you go in, you feel this cool air blowing on you in the vestibule, and you look, it looks like a big fan with a bunch of cardboard on it, which is pretty much what it is, and water's going across cardboard. They basically put entire walls of that shit up to cool. They have automation that like when it gets to a certain amount, too much sun, like a 30% shade cloth will roll out. And if it gets too much more, like roll to a 40% and it's all automated. In the winter, they have basically canvases that come and hold the heat in. This isn't going anywhere. This is going to keep getting bigger. Now, for every one successful operation, there'll be five to fail. That's farming. But it's it's going to be it's it's a it's a sector to keep an eye on. And if you want to go into business like this, especially small scale, it is the way to go. We've all seen the farms that are completely indoors, built inside a shipping container and the amount of production that comes out of them. I personally think the way that they do those, most people would be far better suited to do something on their own. But indoor hydroponic and aquaponic growing is going to be something that we are going to continue to see grow and develop and be successful because it gets rid of so many of the problems that are conventional with agriculture. So I wanted to cover that for you. And I think it's a really interesting article and it will be a link in the audio notes for you. If you want to take a a look at it and give it a read, um, moving on, I want to show you this, uh, again, there's a road called boat club. Um, it is, like down where my wife goes shopping, it just intersects the highway, the state highway that comes up here. And so I'm not exactly, and it ends there and it goes the other direction. I'm not exactly sure where this is, but it's somewhere on Boat Club Road, which is, it, it, it could be as little as two or three miles uh, from me, or it could be further north. I don't know. But this is what's being called a build to rent neighborhood. I'm basically saying they're single family apartments is a way to look at them. Um, because it's not just you're renting a house. All your neighbors are renters, too. And this is pretty high-end uh, stuff. At least that's a promise. So let me go ahead and pull this up for you guys here. And uh, let me mute my mic, and I'll hit play for you. It's only uh, a few seconds long. In housing news, a new luxury-gated neighborhood coming to Fort Worth, according to the Dallas Business Journal. The build-to-rent community will be located on Boat Club Road with 100-plus homes available. The firm Next Metro Communities website describes these homes as single-story detached homes with open floor plans, upscale features, and private backyards. No word yet on when the site will open for leasing. All right, so I just found this really interesting partially because it's so dadgone close to my house and I didn't know about it. But I'm going to bet there's a lot more of these going on. And I bet the same people, I bet the same people uh, who are behind all of the single family homes being bought up, especially in in nice neighborhoods in large metro areas, which would be, you know, BlackRock and and all the rest of their ilk, are behind these types of developments. So what they're doing now, they're developing entire subdivisions, centrally owned, centrally planned, and centrally handled as rentals. This is a dangerous business, though. And I don't mean dangerous for us. I mean dangerous for the people doing it. What do you mean? Well, if the economy goes to shit in a bucket bad enough, 
you're talking about an awful lot of people who are paying very, these are not cheap rentals, even for where they are. So what I'm saying is you're going to pay a premium for this and rich people lose jobs too. And you could say anything you want about, you know, you'll own nothing and be happy or whatever. Um, there's a lot of people that are like, hell the hell I will. And there are plenty of people still buying houses and there's not a lot of houses actually available right now. I think there's something like 440,000 houses on the market nationwide right now. Um, or that's a number that was the case a few weeks ago. There might be more now. Don't hold me to it. And, uh, so there is some stuff like, still propping the market up. But most of the people who actually have the kind of money to live in a house like this are people that believe in owning real estate. So they own a house. So you're selling to a segment of a segment. And if and I'm going to tell you the most resilient person in that segment is a business owner, not an employee. And business owners also tend to be people when they're successful business owners that own their houses. So what do you do? When you're running 20 of these neighborhoods, because these are kinds of companies, you're not building one of them. And all of a sudden you start having like a 40, 50% vacancy, which I think is possible in the, in the not so distant future. These guys could go broke. So why would they do it? Here's my theory. They're doing it the same reason that all the giant financial institutions did all the bullshit that they did in 08 and they're doing it again now. They're already of the opinion that if this crashes, they'll just get bailed out. They'll just get bailed out. They'll call it a housing crisis or something. In fact, I think their whole plan is to convert many subdivisions that already exist into this one way or another over time. I think you're looking at Agenda 2030 in this, and I don't say that to be kind of a uh, you know conspiracy theorist or whatever. Uh, you don't tune in every other day and hear me going 2030 agenda 2030. Like I don't talk about it that much, but I do mention it and it is a thing. And the, the more you can disenfranchise people from the ownership of property and things, the more control you exert over them. It's, um, it's going to continue. It's going to continue, but it's going to be, uh, it's going to be interesting to watch this. Now, next question I had, this was a pretty interesting question. This is someone that was doing their homework. Um, this person emailed me and said, Hey, I've been looking up a lot of these videos and, uh, on cutting meat. Cause I thought it was a really good episode. You did. And I found this dude and he was, you know, he said he was looking for like merchandising and, and restaurant advice and stuff like that. Cause that's what I said to do. Cause those guys are really sure how to get the maximum value out of a piece of meat. And he said, I found a guy that was showing how to break down tenderloin, which is filet mignon, and have as little waste in it as possible. And what he did is after trimming certain things off it, he took the two tenderloins, put the thin ends together to overlap, curled one end in, used meat glue to hold it all together, and then cut his fillets out of that steak after allowing the meat glue to to cure. And he said he thought it was really interesting. He started thinking, well, this meat glue shit, what is that? And he said he remembered when I covered pink slime, which I wholly advise you 
to avoid eating if you find out how that garbage is made. And so he's like, you know, do you, what do you think about this? Do you hate it? Do you love whatever? I don't, I'm kind of neutral on it. I'm not lining up for it or anything. I probably would in the right circumstances use it myself. So I'm going to try to say this word. I looked up how to say it, but I think it's transglutamense is actually what this stuff is. And this is actually made by proteins that tend to come from the same animals we're using to glue the meat together with, okay? And so it will be blood or protein structure from pork and beef are the two most common ones. It is then introduced with certain microorganisms into a fermentation, is dried out into a powder, and a very small amount of this powder is applied to the meat. The two pieces of meat are pushed together, and after curing, you can't pull it apart. It's really difficult to even see that it was done. And so to me, the risks with this, unless you're like some, if you were allergic to this, I think you'd probably be allergic to meat as a whole, but maybe you could be allergic to the ferment. Uh, I guess that could be an issue, but in of itself, you have eaten this and so have I, and you'll probably eat some of it between now and the end of the month. If you eat cold cuts, a lot of the cold cuts, have you ever wondered where a ham comes? It's shaped like the ham that they put on the slicer at the store. Now, it might be somewhat mitigated with cold cuts because a lot of times what's done with cold cuts is it's kind of pressed together and doesn't always need a meat glue. And the way they cook it, it causes the meat to fuse together to some degree. Um, but a lot of cold cuts are made with it. But like I said, those little crab leg things, the fake crab legs, that's made with it. A lot of yogurts have this stuff in it. There's a ton of food that has the, some of the sausages that you might buy that are caseless. That's how they do it. So the thing itself is not what concerns me. If you read this article, I have up on the screen right now in full, you'll find that one of the things that is a concern is why we tend not to make a really rare hamburger unless we know exactly where that meat came from and how it was handled. But yet we will make a very rare steak and not worry about it. Well, the reason is that when we have a piece of meat, it's exposed to the air. There's a certain amount of bacteria that get on anything. And so the inside of that steak is not exposed to the air. So there's a very low, if any, bacterial count from exposure anyway inside that steak. And when we cook it, even if we cook it blue, right, man, we've got 130 degrees. It is it looks like it's mooing when you cut it open. That interior of that steak is not exposed to the air until you cut it open to eat it. And then it's not around for very long, is it? And the outside of that steak, even if we cook the interior temperature very low, the outside gets really hot. And that incinerates, destroys, kills, you know, call it whatever you want, pasteurizes any bacteria on the outside of the steak. So that's the theory. So the theory is when we glue it together, we're putting something that was on the outside on the inside. Now, I promise you I would explain how this actually relates to a thing at Costco that people think is a big, giant, bad thing that they've discovered and no one else has. And this is a stupid thing that Costco does, by the way. I'm not defending the fact that they do it. It's very stupid and there's no need for it. Blade tenderizing. Blade tenderizing. So... Blade tenderizing is something you do with a piece of shitty meat, okay? When, when, you, when you take a piece of crappy meat 
that's going to be really tough. You take this machine and it pokes holes in it. It breaks the muscle fibers up and it tenderizes it. But if you go to Costco and you look at some really beautiful, let's say, ribeyes that are like an inch and a quarter thick, gorgeous ribeye, one of the most cut, tender cuts of meat. Often, you look at the label, it'll say blade tenderized. And then it'll tell you some stupid shit about cooking it to like 155 or 160 degrees or some shit. Like, basically, it recommends treating it like shitty, crappy ground beef. Don't cook this rare. And why? Because those blades go in there and they can force bacteria from the outside of the steak to the inside of the steak. Now, here's the thing. Every day, literally millions of people buy ribeyes and New York strips and shit like that from Costco. They take it home, they cook it medium, and nobody gets sick. Or like I said, the lawsuit that Costco would have received by now would have been something attuned to what the freaking tobacco industry got handed their asses to them with in the 80s. It would be that bad. You've never met anybody. You don't know anybody. Man, I went to Costco, got myself some New York strips, brought them home, cooked them to 135 so they were beautiful, ate them, and ended up in the hospital that night from some sort of food poisoning. For all of the talk, nothing happens. And this is because, in general, the way meat is handled in our country is actually pretty good. Now, what they're feeding the animal, how they treat the animal, etc., not so much. Chicken, less so. But beef, the way beef and pork are handled, from a processing, packaging, transportation situation, is actually really damn good. Now, good is a subject. I'm talking from a safety standpoint. I'm not even, I'm not talking nutrition. I'm not talking health. I'm not talking care and treatment of the animal. I'm talking, you eat the food. You don't go to the hospital the next day. That's all I'm saying. And so this idea that if we glue two tenderloins together and cut it, that we're ending up with some kind of toxic, no, it would be fine. Now, but understand why would a restaurant do this? Why would a restaurant do this? Because when I go to a restaurant and I order a filet, I expect a medallion or two. I expect two because I eat a lot of meat and they're not that big. Two big, thick, beautiful, medium, rare, medium, rare, almost mooing medallions. Maybe a piece of bacon wrapped around it, whatever. I don't actually order that very often because I actually think the filet is overrated. It's very tender, but it doesn't have the flavor but something like a ribeye or a porterhouse does. But I appreciate it for what it is, but that's what I expect. It doesn't have to look like that to taste like that. So if you didn't want to use meat glue, you could literally take and do the same thing that guy did in that video. I tried to find that video. I couldn't find it in my history. I know exactly what video you're talking about. You could take butcher's knots and tie that whole thing up with butcher knots and string, and you can cut your medallions, and you can cook them. And when you're done cooking them, it'll kind of fall apart where that was. It won't stay stuck together. It won't matter. You won't care. And if you're sous vide, I would just take the ones you had to, that had to be tied, and I would put those in, in, uh, in my cryovac machine, and I would sous vide those. And they pretty much will stay together on the sear after the fact with that. In fact, I personally, whenever I do cook filet, I always cook it sous vide because I do not ever want the damn thing remotely overcooked. So you could do that. You could also use the smaller pieces of meat in a different way 
because it's still filet, right? So I wouldn't be afraid to use it, but I don't know that I would use it. Now there's the dark side of meat glue. See, there's another thing that's done with meat glue. And this, my issue is not safety as much as it is dishonesty. They will take a whole bunch of pieces of random ass meat and glue it together and then make it look like a steak. This is done by a lot of restaurants that do like buffets with steak on the buffet and stuff like that. To me, it's dishonest because you're not disclosing to the customer what you're doing. And you're doing something that's like a Franken meat, right? You don't know where the meat's coming from. So, and when you, so whatever you call it is a lie. If you do what that dude did in that video and you call it a fillet, that's what it is. All the meat came from the fillet. It all was the same. It was basically two sides for one cow put together just so it would present. And to be fair, it will cook much nicer. When you have a little piece, when you get down to what they call the ends, your little tapered ends of your fillet, it's you can cook it really nice, but you can't cook it like you would a steak. It just doesn't work out that way. So I understand why they do that. That doesn't bother me. Making a Franken meat, a fake meat, basically, it's, it's like one step back from doing like full on 3D printed fake meat. That I'm, that I'm not okay with. Making something look like something that it isn't like a crab leg. But at least a crab leg tells you it's imitation. You should be able to figure out what's going on. But I, I'm not real scared of the product itself. Speaking of things not to be scared of, we don't have to cook meat. We can cure meat. Pretty safe. Um, I got an email from somebody last week. Have you ever heard of Bastrama or Barastrama? B-A-S-T-R-A-M-A. I had not. I looked it up. I found a couple different people making it. I found a dude making it with a one-minute-long video on TikTok, so I thought I would play that for you. And then we're going to talk about this stuff because I have possibly found one of my new true loves in the world. I haven't tried it yet, but I... I can't see where I'm not going to love this, and it actually looks really easy to do. Again, I'm going to be playing a video for everybody on the uh, on the video side. If you're listening to the audio, even though you won't see it, it won't be as impactful, but I think you'll be able to follow along pretty good and get it. It's only a minute long. One minute. Let's make Bastrama. Oh. Trimmed up eye of round. Take a dish and sprinkle salt all on the bottom. Take your eye of round, put it in. Cover it with salt. Poke holes in it. Put it in the fridge for two days. After two days, drain off the liquid. Rinse off the salt. And let it soak in cold water for one to three hours. Dry it off. Wrap it in paper towels. Put it on a sheet tray. Another sheet tray on top. Weights on it. In the fridge for another day. Unwrap the paper towel. Should be kind of flat. Poke a hole through the top hole of the butcher's twine through. Hang it in a cool, dry place for five to ten days. Or in a refrigerator for eight to fourteen days until it's nice and firm. Food processor. Six cloves garlic. Half cup water. Puree, half cup fenugreek, half cup paprika, tablespoon allspice, two teaspoons cumin, tablespoon black pepper, teaspoon salt, teaspoon cayenne. Add water until it's pancake batter consistency. About one cup. Take your dried meat and spread a thin layer of the chimen on top. Just like that. Hang it back in the refrigerator for three to five days until it's nice and dry. There it is. Fosterma. Slice it thin with a knife or use a deli slicer. Nice thin slices. So... Tell me that doesn't look like something you'd want to smash if you're into cured meats. And it looks like one of the easiest to do cured meats I've ever seen. I'll just remind you from the show I did a couple weeks ago about meat cutting. You can get a whole eye around at Costco for $4.34 a pound. Now, I don't know how much time you guys spend out there eating cured meats. I like cured meats a lot. 
a lot. And none of them are five bucks a pound. None of them worth eating are five bucks a pound. That looks like freaking deliciousness on top of deliciousness. Now, if you think about the name, Barastrama, it sounds kind of like pastrami, doesn't it? And it is actually sort of, in fact, it's actually called pastrama in some places as well. The stuff is like from the areas of like Turkey and Syria and Lebanon. And it's basically their version of pastrami or pastrama. And it actually has a similar story to Biltong. So Biltong originated in South Africa with the Boers, and they would take meat and put it under their saddles with certain seasoning, and it would get compressed, and it would get salty from the sweat of the horse. Yeah. And they figured out, hey, there's probably a better way to do this, and Biltong became what Biltong is. This stuff, the, the, the word actually means pressed. In one of the languages from where it's from, I just I'm new to this. I don't remember. But if you look, if the guys you put weight on it and it goes back to that. And to me, the big difference between this and the way I've always seen pastrami made pastrami. I've always seen it made in a wet brine instead of a dry brine. And I've never seen it been pressed, but it looks a lot like pastrami. Um, I cannot wait to make this. I don't know if I'm going to wait long enough to go back to freaking Costco to get an eye around. I might this week run up to the grocery store and see if they have either a whole eye around or a big piece of it or something. Cause it's about the cheapest meat there is to do something like this. And it's a much higher use of top round than trying to make steaks out of it and pretending that they're good. Cause they're just not that great. It makes a pretty good roast beef, especially put it on a deli slicer. But this is another thing. Look at this. Okay. I've been talking about getting a good deli slicer. I'm going to have to do it just for this. This looks fantastic. So the dude that sent me the email about this, thank you. All of you know, I found that video this weekend. I emailed a, a link from it to my buddy David. And I'm like, we have to make this. And uh, Eka Mouse is saying, 56 likes, yet 116 watching. Smash that like button. Eka, I'll let you know there's actually a significant number more people watching it. That's how many there are on YouTube alone. Pretty good show up on uh, Rumble and some other places today as well. But Ika Mouse will be very angry, very angry with you. Her wrath will be fierce, and her wrath will be terrible if you do not listen to her and smash that like button. And Charles the Humble Mechanic has joined us as well. Charles, welcome to the live stream. We're almost done, unfortunately, but I'm glad you're here, bro. Uh, I do have a couple questions. I'm going to go just two. If you have a question for me after today's episode and you want me to answer it here live, if you're here live is what I mean, put it, put the word question in all caps, just like this, just like this. And I will answer it for you. William said, do, did you find a meat slicer? And uh, the answer is so far, no, I have not. And whoever else asked me a question, I apparently started the wrong one using my one good eye and looking out the side. So that was the other one I had highlighted. So I missed the other question. I don't know if there are any other questions here for me today. I'll give it just a few minutes as I uh, go ahead and handle the item of the day today as well. And uh, so I'll bring that up and that'll give you guys a little bit more time to ask me questions if you have them. So the item of the day today, so we were talking about meat and I thought it would be a good fit. The Victor Knox 
8-inch braking knife. I'm about to bring it up on screen. I also got one right here. Uh, I put this out, and I'll tell you why I did it. This is something I should have wrote up a long time ago. This knife and its little brother, the uh, the semi, uh, semi-stiff semi uh, boning knife. That will actually be tomorrow's item of the day. Um, I've had these knives a long time. I've recommended them a long time. I never wrote them up on T-Spaz. When I did the meat-cutting show, I uh, I put the – and I got some questions coming in. I got you guys. Keep them coming. All caps question. I, I put links to these in the meat-cutting show notes, and I sold a buttload of them just by mentioning them and putting links on them. Like, you got to get this up. Don't hate money, Jack. Follow your own advice. Get these things up for review. But I wanted to actually show you guys, and I do have a video where I go deeper into these knives. I wanted to show you why I recommend the 8-inch breaking knife versus the 10 or the 12 that quite a few people have asked about. It's a lot less expensive because it's less expensive to manufacture because it's smaller. And I just don't see most people in a home meat processing environment needing a larger blade than this. Because it's eight inches long, it's big enough to do really good slicing work when you're doing you're cutting steaks out of a piece you've muscled out. But it's not so big that it's kind of unwieldy. And really, to me, your 10-inch knives, your 12-inch knives, those are more when you're actually breaking down a side of beef or something like that. And what most of us are going to be doing at home is we're either going to be buying a primal or subprimal from a warehouse store and bringing it home, or we're going to be breaking down something like a lamb or a smaller pig or a deer or something like that. And the larger blade is just not necessary. If you want one, by all means, get it. But definitely, let me tell you, if you get yourself one of these and you start cutting meat with it, you're going to understand why this is the knife professionals use for this task more than anything else. I put the video I put up this morning. There's already a guy said that he went to school to learn how to, to do butchering in 2000. And they gave him one of these knives, a 10-inch steak knife, and the boning knife I recommend in 2000. When he went to school, that's the knife that he gave him. If you go to the – like one of the, the most well-known uh, people for doing meat-cutting videos on the Internet are the Bearded Butchers. Really cool guys, by the way, totally worth following. You go to their site, and you look at the knives that they actually sell. They sell this knife with a wooden handle for more money. I don't, and I put my ride up. If you want to pay more money for the wooden handle, go ahead. I really like this Fibrix handle for meat cutting. When you're cutting these big pieces of meat, shit is wet. Your hands get slippery. This stays. In fact, when it, this gets blood and stuff on it, it actually gets stickier. Um, so definitely check these out if you haven't gotten one yet. If you process your own deer, and you don't have one of these, where do you get one? You get this and the boning knife I'll bring you tomorrow, and you won't use anything else. And when it comes to, like, actually breaking down, like taking your back legs off and disjointing and taking your uh, your hawk off at the joint and all, this is it. This is all you need. I can, I can actually process a deer with a pocket knife if I have to, but it's just a lot more convenient. This swept blade is also beautiful for when you're taking that large amounts of fat off the outside. It does a great job of that. Definitely check this thing out. All right. With that, let's go ahead and answer a couple questions and wrap up. I had a few come in, and uh, Mike says that sucker looks a lot bigger than eight inches. Not eight inches. It's I got pretty big hands, I guess. You know, 
So it's, it's an eight inch blade. Uh, so the full length of the knife is more than eight inches. It's eight inches from hilt to tip. All right. Uh, and by the way, get a freaking sharpening steel. If you do not own a sharpening steel, please. If you value your knives in your kitchen at all, get a honing steel, learn how to use it. Remember, these things don't make knives sharp. What they do is keep sharp knives sharp longer, and so you have to go less time in between doing full-on sharpening stone type sharpening. All right, so let's see what we got here. I think three questions came in. Uh, no, one is the same one that I find in Meat Grinder, so there's two. Uh, Liberty Garden, how come Japanese tea gardens don't use edibles or fruit trees? I don't know. Maybe because they're tea gardens and they're designed for growing tea. But isn't there a lot of things that, you, that grow fruit that actually make good tea? Uh, roses grow hips and petals and hips both make good tea. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, blackberry leaf actually is a great black tea substitute. Uh, goji berry leaf is a great tea leaf. And you can you can ferment goji leaf or blackberry leaf to like a black tea as well. So I, I don't know. I don't know why they don't. But I don't think that we have to be bound by anything that anybody else says when it comes to our gardens. You want a Japanese tea garden with a mandarin orange tree in the middle of it, assuming the climate's right, and you want to grow your other stuff, go for it, bro. Builder Castle says, what is the percentage possibility you would put on you will have to move your growing greens or more business because the department of making you unhappy says get out. Um, actually pretty low. I, I think your biggest problem with establishing like a greenhouse operation is getting it up and going. But once it's done, I, of all the things the department of making you sad has jacked with, uh, that's probably been one of the least is, is people growing food. Uh, Boy, in Europe, they sure seem to be working really hard on putting farmers out of business. In America, we seem to be moving more toward conglomeration. But the, 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 the segment of society that the government seems to be going after in the ag world is meat production, not greens production. And the environmental groups, and I'm not talking all the environment, the big ones that steer policy, and all, they love indoor growing. They think it's fabulous because it's more production and less uh, damaging on land. And it really does do agriculture the way we do it to produce large scale crops is an environmental catastrophe. It is an environmental catastrophe. Meat production, it's funny. Like if you do meat production the right way, it's, it's the most restorative and regenerative agriculture you could do. Perennial tree systems with grazing lanes and paddock rotation grazing is the most environmentally regenerative, not even sustainable, regenerative thing you can do. And it's the thing that they're waging war on because it's not about the planet. It's about a compliant, sick, and willing to, to go along and get along society. It's about making us batteries in the matrix, guys. You can't make a billion dollars a day in the pharmaceutical industry with a society that's not sick. Have you ever thought about, for all the shit we give the pharmaceutical companies, how sick do we have to be as a society for them to be as powerful as they are? I mean, how did anybody live 50 years ago before we had all these new drugs? They've, I get Every time I say this, they've lengthened lives. Have they really? 
have they? I'll give you that some of the infectious diseases that we develop vaccines for, and I know there's always the, like, every vaccine's bad person. You just believe whatever you want. But if you go back and you look at things like smallpox and all, yeah, that, they did that. I'll, I'll give them credit for that. And they, we've done as much for health and wellness with engineering as we've done with medicine. In fact, I would say more. The number one reason people don't die of malaria in the United States is one, hydroxychloroquine works for malaria. Uh, but two is that we don't even have a lot of people using it for that because we don't need it for that because the engineering solutions that we have have made the type of environment that makes the malarial mosquito a real problem in society not. Doesn't mean there ain't mosquitoes. It doesn't mean nobody gets bit. But I said this, and I, 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 I'm going to ask T, CJ to talk about it a little bit uh, at the workshop and kind of impromptu. If you don't understand the history of malaria, then you don't understand the history of like half the world, including right here in the United States. Hot zones for malaria in the United States, what is the United States today during colonial times, included Virginia. We think of it as a tropical disease. It's not. It's a mosquito disease. So we have done a lot to extend life more with engineering than drugs. Roads, refrigeration, proper food handling, knowing how to drain places that are the worst mosquito places, for stuff like that. That's done a tremendous amount to let more people realize their potential lifespan. Because in reality, I, I covered this years ago. If you were, you know, when we think of at the time being wealthy and basically affluent upper middle class, you had food. You had decent climate control. You lived about as long as people live today. I did a whole breakdown of our founders and how long the people that signed our, our Constitution or our, our Declaration of Independence lived. Their average age at death was 72.1 years. And when I did that review, it was back in like 08 or 09. And I, the CDC said that the life expectancy of a white male in America today was 72.8 years. We gained 0.7 years if you get off the zero, because part of why the death rates were so low back then is because there were so many zeros. People that died at birth or died in early childhood. That's the big difference maker, guys, believe it or not. Anyway, guys, hope you guys enjoyed today's show. I don't know what tomorrow is going to bring yet for the episode tomorrow, but it'll be something cool. It will be just me. We'll have an interview Wednesday like typical. Another Just Jack show on Thursday, and it looks like I shook the piker tree. bunch of content's coming out, so it looks like we'll have a great expert panel show for you guys next week as well. I heard from Jessica Mills, who I ain't heard from forever. She's been globetrotting all over the place. She's doing a segment, supposedly, this week for us about having to push the emergency button on the trail and what that was like. So I think that'll be interesting. With that, guys, I'll take... That's all I tell you to take care. Catch you tomorrow with another episode. Just run you around. They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way